Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, I want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online and those of you also who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and also in the northwest part of our city in the Crowfoot Theatres. Well, I've just enjoyed, uh, along with about 50 other people, um, two wonderful weeks in um, the country of Israel, and uh, just so many highlights I could share with you. Some of the ones that just stand out, we had three people um, uh, pray to um, commit their lives to Jesus Christ in the Garden Tomb. And, uh, you know, over the years now, that's been over 70 people that have come to Christ just going along on this trip. We had uh, 25 people. And by the way, you're not excited about that? <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, had 25 people um, baptized uh, in the Jordan River, and um, it was a very, very warm day, and I stood there for two hours as we heard amazing testimonies of people that had come to Jesus Christ. And, and you know, the, um, more than half the group uh, came out of atheism or other religions, um, and it just was, it was mind-boggling just hearing the stories of how God is at work in our world and in the lives of our people. Most of these people are from our church. And so just uh, wonderful. We spent an entire evening, 8.30 in the evening till 2 o'clock in the morning, praying for people who were seeking healing and, and restoration in their lives. And then um, on, our, on our Sundays... <laughs> We were, we were there for two Sundays, and the first Sunday we were on this, this boat out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and we worshiped our Lord right out in the middle of the sea. I gave a devotional there and, uh, you know, challenged people to get out of the boat. Nobody did, but, uh, you know, we were talking about matters of faith, and uh, so it was wonderful. And, um, and then the last Sunday, um, we had a three-hour worship service. You guys think an hour and 15 minutes is long. We went for three hours and it seemed to go like that. We had people share about what God was doing in their life. And it's just so wonderful to see people take another step in their walk with God. So uh, just a wonderful time. Anyways, we're in a series we're calling Christianity 101 in which we're examining the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And presently we're looking at what the Bible says about the afterlife or what happens to us after we die. The Bible teaches that every single human being will spend eternity in one of two places, either with God in heaven or separated from God in a place called hell. There will come a day when you will never have another doubt about that. You may doubt it now, but you won't then. A few weeks ago, we examined what the Bible teaches about hell. In this message, we're going to examine what the Bible teaches about heaven. Before we get into it, I want to invite you to stand with me as we dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer. Our eternal Father, I pray that you will renew our hope today in knowing that a day is coming when all that is wrong in this life will be no more. 
And we will experience instead your very best for us in heaven. Help us, Lord, to even get a small glimpse of what heaven's going to be like for our encouragement, but also to remind us how important it is that we live with heaven in our heart. That we're aware, Lord, that so many people are not headed there. Remind us of that today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Former CEO of Apple Corporation, Steve Jobs, he died of pancreatic cancer about five years ago. In a commencement speech he gave at Stanford University sometime after his cancer diagnosis, he said this, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. Now why is that? Why are so many people not overly excited about heaven? Well, there are a number of reasons that we could give, but the one that I want to touch on is that many people have this idea that heaven is going to be incredibly boring. They have this image of us sitting on clouds and playing harps, or maybe singing in a choir in a never-ending worship service. And even though a worship service in church can be totally amazing, the idea of it lasting 100 years or more just feels a bit much. I mean, some of us can barely get through a 100-minute worship service, much, yes, much less a 100-year worship service. In his excellent book on heaven, Randy Alcorn, he reminds us that our archenemy, Satan, is the father of lies. And one of his greatest lies is about what heaven is like. He says, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. All he needs to do is convince us that heaven is a boring place. Now, if we believe that lie, we're going to be robbed of our joy and our anticipation of heaven. We're going to get totally fixated on this life. We're going to try to get everything we can in this life. We're going to live for now because the next life doesn't sound all that exciting. As I mentioned a few moments ago, my wife Gwen and I, along with about 50 people from our church, just returned from another pilgrimage in Israel. And even though we've led pilgrimages to Israel about 10 times now, it never gets old. Because being there just makes the Bible come alive. We love seeing it come alive in people's lives. And all of the historical and the archaeological evidence deepens our conviction that the Bible is true and that Jesus lives. Now, I can give you a detailed description of the Holy Land. I can even show you amazing pictures and high-definition videos of Israel. But until you've been there and you've experienced it in person, the pictures, the videos just don't do it justice. I hear people say this again and again. You have to experience it personally. Well, that's a little bit of what we have to keep in mind when we talk about heaven. I have a very limited understanding of what heaven's going to be like. The Bible provides us with a bit of a description, but these descriptions just don't do justice to the real thing or what we're going to experience when we get there. 
And the reason I say that is based on what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where he said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You know what this verse is saying? It's essentially saying this. Think of that incredibly special day, a moment in time. You experienced something that was so spectacular, so awe-inspiring. Maybe it was with a group of loved ones, or maybe it was something in nature that just blew you away. He said, think about those, that awe-inspiring moment. The day that you found yourself wishing that this would never end. The day you found yourself saying life doesn't get any better than this. Can you think of a day like that? A moment in time like that? Well, says Paul here, our Heavenly Father. He loves us so much that he is dreaming up. He is preparing a place for us that will be infinitely and indescribably better than that. A thousand times better than that. Anything you can imagine will fall short of what God has prepared for those who love Him. However, having said that, the Bible does give us some idea of what heaven is like. And so, the time remaining, I just want to share some of the descriptions of heaven that we find in the Scriptures. So let's begin by turning in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. There we find a description of heaven. While you're doing that, I I just want to uh, give credit to a number of people that I've read for their insights on this subject, including uh, Erwin Lutzer, Gene Apple, Randy Alcorn, John MacArthur, John Ortberg, and many others I could mention. So appreciate the different insights that these different authors and people have. So please follow along as I read this passage. In fact, why don't you stand and let's read it together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You may be seated. Now, if I were to pick out a key word in this description of heaven here in Revelation 21, it would be the word new. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 5. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So let's take a closer look at this new heaven. First of all, when we get to heaven, we're going to enter a new home. A moment after you die as a believer, while your relatives are mourning your death on earth, you will find yourself in the presence of Jesus and in a new home which is beyond your imagination. Back on earth, your friends and family will bury your body, but they cannot bury you. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And then in verse 8, he says, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In other words, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. It is to be in his presence. Just before Stephen died, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He didn't say, receive my body. He said, receive my spirit. So if you're a believer, the Bible teaches that even though your body is buried, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Now, your new home called heaven will be filled with beauty. Jesus said in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. If Jesus is preparing our heavenly home, I mean, if the author of the universe of creation is preparing our eternal home, I mean, it's going to be awesome, right? Hebrews 11.10 refers to the Lord as the master builder of heaven. And he's using building materials we've, we've never dreamed of. In Revelation 4 and Revelation 21, words like emerald and gold and jasper and crystal are used to describe the beauty of heaven. Just to help us to get a bit of a picture of what it's going to be like. Heaven will be make man made kingdoms like Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom seem like cardboard construction. But what will make heaven appealing is not so much its beauty, but the intimate relationships we're going to have there. One of the most attractive things about heaven is who's going to be there. Heaven will be home because God will be there. And he will welcome us home. Revelation 21, 2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now notice the imagery that God uses here, that the scriptures use here. The story of God and his people is described as the story, fundamentally, of a bride and a groom. When a boy is five years old and lives in a healthy home, from his limited perspective, life isn't going to get any better than spending the rest of his life with mom and dad. There's no use telling a five-year-old boy that a day is coming when he will meet a person of the female persuasion that will steal the affection that he now has toward his mom and dad. 
But having four sons ourselves, I can tell you, a day came when all of that changed. The day came when he saw her. Boy, did he see her. And he was totally smitten. And sometime later, he came and said something to the effect, Dad, she's the love of my life. I was meant for her. My life would be incomplete without her. Now, you see, that's a picture of how our perspective begins to change about our relationship with Jesus and our relationship and, and, and the concept of heaven. It might be that right now you, you think you don't want to leave this life. And to some extent, that's healthy perspective because people that want to die, there's something not right. God's given us a desire to live. That's understandable. But sometimes that's all we want. And maybe right now that's where you're at. You can't imagine life being any better than it is here on earth. Heaven has no appeal. But you see, all of that begins to change when you genuinely meet Jesus. And over time, as you come to know him, and you see him as he really is, as your love for him and your friendship with him grows deeper and more intimate, as you see his amazing love and grace and power at work, not only in your life, but in the life of other people, when you begin to see families and marriages and people who are, who are spiraling into a, a, in a very negative way in their life, when you begin to see them transformed and changed by this Jesus that you know and love, you increasingly begin to realize that you were meant for him. That life would be nothing without him. And your desire to see him face to face and to be with him forever will grow to the place where the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And so heaven will be a home because God will be there. But heaven will also be a home because there will be beautiful people there. People who love the Lord and love one another unconditionally. You know, people often ask, are, are we going to recognize each other in heaven? Well, yes, we will. In Matthew chapter 17, Moses and Elijah appeared to Peter, James, and John. And there's no indication that the first thing that Jesus did was to introduce his disciples to Elijah and to Moses. No indication they were wearing name tags. No, they recognized each other even though they'd never met before. Moses and Elijah had died hundreds of years before the disciples were born. And yet they recognized them. And see, this will be the case for us as well. We will intuitively recognize each other whether we've ever met before or not. Heaven's going to be a place where spouses and families and friends are going to be reunited. Those of you who've had a young child die or a loved one die in the Lord, you need to know that they continue to love you as they did on earth. 
But now their love is even deeper and their love is even sweeter and pure because it is a love that's been purified by God. Now Christ made it clear in Matthew 22 verse 30 that we will not marry in heaven or be given in marriage, but we will continue to retain our gender. Your mother will be known as your mother in heaven. Your son, your daughter will be known as a member of your earthly family. I like what Chet Bitterman said after his missionary son was killed by gorillas. We have eight children, and they are all living. One's in heaven, and seven are on earth. But my point is, one day we will be reunited with all those who are in the Lord and have died before us, and the fellowship will be like unlike anything we've experienced here on earth. The Bible says that heaven's going to offer you a depth of community like you've never experienced it. Not just for an hour or two or a day or two, no, but forever. Trust-filled, pure, significant relationships forever. No more loneliness. No more isolation or misunderstanding. No more feeling like you're not wanted. None of it. The warmth and the openness and, and togetherness you've perhaps wished all of your life or wished that your family had experienced will be found in heaven. You're going to love there and you're going to be loved there with pure undefiled love. You'll be accepted without question or criticism. You may feel insignificant now. You may feel inferior to other people now, but you won't then. Because then you will know the truth about who you are. And let me remind you about who you are. You are the most precious treasure in God's heaven. He purchased you by his son on the cross. That's who you are. And in heaven, you're going to understand that in its fullness. And the truth will set you free. We'll just know that we're special to God. And you see, that's really a big part of what will make heaven so incredibly beautiful. Now, some people wonder, you know, if there are going to be animals in heaven. Like, will there be dogs and cats in heaven? Well, the short answer is dogs, yes. Cats? <laughs> I sure hope not. No, I'm just kidding. The truth is, in, in Revelation 6 and 9, we read that there's going to be horses in heaven. Isaiah speaks of the lion. Hmm, guess there are going to be cats. And the lamb, and also wolves. Huh? That kind of the dog family. So yes, there will be animals in heaven. So first of all, we're going to have a new home in heaven. Furthermore, we're also going to have a new nature in heaven. Verse 27 says, nothing impure will ever enter it. In heaven, 
we will be as pure as Jesus. The Apostle John wrote, When he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will want to do what's right, and we will do what's right. No more blowing up at the kids. No more guilt from the past that won't go away. No more impure, self-centered motives. No more need to be seen as the best or to be seen as, you know, one up to the next guy. In Revelation 21.5, God says, I am making everything new. And that includes giving us a new nature. There will be no more remorse, no more regret, no more stained conscience. The Bible tells us in heaven we will experience life more fully, more completely, more satisfying than ever before because there is no darkness there. Nothing to hide. Everything is brought into the light. This is the thing that chokes so much of our joy today is because we keep things hidden. We don't bring things into the light and allow Jesus to set us free. Well, in heaven, there'll be none of that. We will be set free. Everything is light. You will know fully and you'll be fully known. Thirdly, in heaven, we're going to receive new bodies. Now, earlier you heard me mention that when we die as believers, our bodies will go in the grave, but our spirits will go to be with the Lord. So when do we receive our new heavenly bodies? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die. But we will be changed. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, the temporary body, must clothe itself with the imperishable, the eternal body, and the mortal with immortality. When Christ comes in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, our perishable earthly bodies, made for an earthly existence, will be transformed into heavenly bodies made for a heavenly eternal existence. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it gives us even more detail. This is what it says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive at that time and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what that's saying is, is just before we believers who are still alive at the time of Christ's coming are caught up to be with him, just before our bodies are transformed into uh, incorruptible eternal bodies, the bodies of believers who have died before us, they will be raised and they will be reunited with their spirit and in a flash 
Their bodies will be transformed into bodies made for an eternal heavenly existence. See, our present bodies are not suited for heaven. And so we're going to receive new bodies like the glorified body that Jesus had after the resurrection. His body could be touched. His body could eat. It could come and go as he pleased with neither walls or distance as an obstacle. Remember, he would just appear in a room. And what that means is in heaven, we're going to travel effortlessly. Went to a wedding yesterday and drove for three hours. Oh, so we were driving back last night. I said, I, I'm just getting too old for this. We're going to travel effortlessly then. Erwin Lutzer points out that in the same way that Jesus could be in Galilee one moment and then appear in Judea moments later, so we will move freely and instantly from one place to another. In other words, in heaven, if, if you want to be somewhere, all you have to do is think about being there and you'll be there. That's going to be really good. Furthermore, you'll be really delighted to know this. We're going to be able to eat in heaven. We're going to eat in heaven. We are. Even as Jesus ate fish with his disciples after his resurrection. But, you know, if you look over at Revelation 19, verse 7, if you want more proof, it says that all Christ followers will be feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, again, we will eat not because we're hungry, or because we need to consume food to live like we do now. No, we're going to eat for the fellowship. I mean, you got to admit that fellowship with one another, just something's missing if you're not eating together. And it's going to be a big part of heaven. That's, good. That's cool. Now, you'll also be happy to know that our heavenly bodies will be so much better than the ones we have right now. 2 Corinthians 5.1 gives this comparison. If our bodies now are like a tent, in heaven they'll be like a house. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says our bodies will be immortal, meaning that they're not going to wear out. They'll be powerful, meaning that we won't get tired. They'll be spiritual, meaning we will finally like how we look. No more facelifts, fitness programs, dentures, counting calories, bifocals, or bulges. None of it in heaven. And so in heaven, we're going to receive a new home. We're going to receive a new nature and a new body. Fourthly, in heaven, we're going to experience a new vocation. People wonder, what will there be to do in heaven? Some people are convinced that heaven is, is, is going to be this ultimate retirement village where you kind of sit around and you soak and you, you do your favorite activity forever. People want to know, you know, is there going to be golf in heaven? Well, you know, I, I love golf, but in heaven there will be no lying, no swearing or cheating, so <laughs> how can there be golf in heaven? I mean, I, I, I'm just joking. The, Billy Graham's wife said that um, 
He asked her that question. He said, what do you think? And she said, well, if it's something you enjoy, it's going to be there. Unlike hell, heaven will be a place of great joy and laughter. It will also be a place of rest. But it will be more than just sitting around drinking lemonade in the shade. Heaven will be a place of discovery. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might, and notice this word, show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know, the word show in that verse refers to a progressive ongoing discovery that we will continue to learn and and grow while we're in heaven. We're going to be able to ask God all kinds of questions in heaven. Like, why did he allow certain tragedies and hardships to come our way? I've got a whole list of questions I'm going to ask him. Like, why didn't you remove Satan right away? We're going to be able to ask others in heaven questions. Like, we're going to be able to ask Adam questions. Like, okay, now, Adam, be honest now. What really went through your mind the first time you saw Eve? We'll be productive. We're going to accomplish things in heaven. Revelation 7 and 22 indicate that we will serve God. In heaven, we're finally going to be able to fully express all the gifts and the abilities that God's given to us. See, God's given us so much, so much talent and abilities. The trouble is, so many times, because we struggle with our own identity and and all the rest, we never express them fully. That's not going to be the case in heaven. Artists will create unbelievable art. Musicians will sing and perform music that will blow us away and be incredibly pleasing to God. Scientists will continue exploring the universe along with many others. We're going to engage in productive work that inspires and deeply satisfies us. The work some of us did on earth won't be needed in heaven. And so, for example, since there won't be any death or sickness or cavities or criminals in heaven, there won't be any need for funeral directors or doctors or dentists or policemen in heaven. I mean, they're going to be there. (laughs) Don't get that, but they're just going to be doing other things. We will have all of eternity to explore the mysteries of God and to celebrate and share with one another. Folks, make no mistake. You will never be bored in heaven. You'll be amazingly productive. There will also be rewards in heaven. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Our good works won't get us to heaven, but if they're done with the right heart motive, they are going to be rewarded in heaven. And our experience of heaven is going to be richer as a result. Gene Apple says, the godly husband who tenderly cares for his wife who has Alzheimer's is going to be rewarded more than the husband whose wife is healthy and whom he takes for granted. Matthew 6.19 teaches that those who have generously and sacrificially given away 
a percentage, 10%, 20%, whatever percent of their resources to further God's kingdom and to advance the mission of the church, they're going to have more treasures laid up in heaven than those who just gave God a tip or gave God the leftovers. Heaven is going to be an amazing place. And then fifthly, when we get to heaven, we're going to experience a new joy. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Oh yes, we will have one final cry. And do you ever wonder what that's about? We're going to have one more cry over the missed opportunities and how imperfectly we love the Lord in this life. But then the Bible says, the Lord will wipe away our tears. And there won't be any more. Kids won't rebel. Parents won't lose their jobs or their houses. Children won't be abused. They won't have defects or handicaps. No one will get sick and die. Jesus said, I'm making everything new. The scars of sin, the stains of guilt that you carry now, the abuse that you suffered, the sexual abuse, the awful memories of rape, the regrets, all of this will be wiped away and be no more. What a day that will be. And folks, that is why we will experience complete relaxed joy in heaven. Think of your purest joy here on earth. Multiply it by a thousand or a million times. And you might catch a glimpse, just the glimpse of the joy, the peace, and the thrill that we're going to experience in heaven. Psalm 1611, King David said this of his Lord. In your presence, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there you have it, a glimpse of heaven. I want to wrap up by asking, so what? What difference does knowing about heaven make as we live life week in and week out? Well, first of all, the reality of heaven reminds us that the best is yet to be. In John 16, 20, it says, You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. That is the hope of the Christian. This world is broken. This world is so far from what God intended it to be in the beginning. 
And as a result, we experience all kinds of grief and hardship and and trouble and pain. But as we just saw from the scriptures, heaven will have none of that. Heaven is not a second-class option. When we get to heaven, we're going to experience unspeakable joy and peace and have a better time than anything we've experienced in this life. The best is yet to be. Secondly, the reality of heaven reminds us to invest in things that are going to last. You know, if you believe that life ends abruptly at the grave, that your candle goes out and that's it, then like so many people today, we're likely to get all that we can for ourselves in the time that is allotted to us. And how narrow and how selfish that can become. It's just out for ourselves. We're the center of the universe. But if we believe that there is a heavenly father who loves us so much that he has prepared a home for each and every one of us and wants us to live with him forever in heaven. If we truly believe that, then our life takes on some of the qualities of the life to come. We have heaven in our heart. We are more kind, we're more considerate, we're more tender-hearted. We're more devoted to the good and to the good of other people. And above all, we are committed to eternal values rather than the cheap substitutes of success this world attempts to seduce us with. Remember, Jesus said, whatever we accumulate for our own comfort, for our own ego gratification for our own interests those things are going to either rot or they're going to rust or someone's going to rip them off or we're going to leave them behind but whatever we genuinely give to God will be blessed by God and be used by God to impact the lives of others for eternity, and they, as a result, they will last forever. Folks, God wants to change our world through us, one life at a time. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus taught us to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we choose to be kind rather than cruel, when we choose to be generous rather than greedy, with our time and with our money, when we choose to be considerate rather than rude, when we choose integrity over dishonesty or humility over pride, God will use us to bring a little heaven to earth, to bring a little heaven into our marriages and into our families and into all of our relationships. You know, the only thing, and you've heard me say this many times, but the only thing we can bring to heaven with us is our heart faith in Jesus and other people who have put their faith in Jesus. That's it. Everything else will be left behind. Burn one day. And so may we invest less of our time 
our abilities and our money, accumulating things like trophies and possessions and position and power. And instead, passionately invest our lives into loving God and loving people. Daily cultivating close friendships with our close friendship with God and prayerfully loving on children and youth and adults and our family and our friends and our fellow students and fellow working associates and anyone else in our sphere of influence until the day comes they know the Jesus that we know and love. May God remind us to keep heaven on our heart in all that we do. And finally, heaven reminds us that we, are, we just need to be prepared to meet our God. On September 11th, 2001, more than 5,000 men and women went to work at the World Trade Center in New York City. And they began what they thought was just another routine day at the office. None of them, I'm sure, had any indication that within a couple of hours their life would be over. Last April 25th, the people of Nepal, they woke up to just another day, just like you and I did today. Totally unaware that within a few short hours a devastating earthquake would wipe out the lives of over 9,000 people. Last October 13th, Roger and Benita Bolt, they got up just like we did today. Had no idea that on that day, their three girls playing in a grain truck loaded with canola would perish and suffocate. What started out as a bright and a beautiful day ended up in tragedy and deep grief. Just this past week, while we were in Israel, we heard of a flight in Paris where 66 people got onto a plane like tens of thousands do every day headed for Egypt. And I'm sure that many of them were looking forward to meeting family and friends and carrying out the plans that they had for that week or for that year. I doubt any of them gave a moment's thought that this would be their last day on earth. And even though we read about deaths like this in the paper every day, we kind of convince ourselves that, you know, it's something that happens to someone else. We fool ourselves into thinking that it only happens to old people or it only happens to other people. But then one day it happens to someone really close. To someone really young. And we realize that death is no longer something which happens to someone else. Each of us has an appointment with death, not because of fable, but because the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment. And folks, once death comes, the opportunities of life are over. The decisions are made. Our values, our relationships are made. 
and they are sealed forever. There is no undoing them. However, all of us who are alive, and I'm assuming that we're all breathing in this place, might want to check the person next to you. All of us who are still alive in this place, we still have the opportunity to choose the path that we're going to travel on. We still are in a position to make decisions about whether we're going to grow bitter or better in life, about whether we're going to sow the seeds of love and kindness and gentleness and self-control into our marriage and into our family, into all of our relationships, or whether we're just simply going to fear and ignore death. or whether we're going to prepare for death. Some of you here have yet to make a decision about your eternity. Revelation 21, 27 says this about heaven. Nothing impure will enter it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now the fact is you and I will never be pure enough to get into heaven we can never be good enough. We can never do enough to get into heaven. Let's face it, we need a Savior. And yeah, for some people, that just sounds like such a weak thing, like for wimps. No, we need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. The Lamb who died on the cross for your sins and my sin so that our sins might be forgiven and folks he also arose from the grave he rose so that he could live his life of victory through us and in us and when we put our trust in him we ask him to forgive us of our sins and to be our savior and lord he invades our life. And in that moment, God takes all of our junk and he places it on Jesus. And he takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and he places it on us, which makes us pure and righteous and holy not and acceptable to God, but also worthy to enter heaven. Not because we are ever worthy, because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but because He is worthy and He is in us and we are in Him by faith in Jesus Christ. He's the way to heaven. That's what He said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love this, what he said to those who mourned his death. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die in this life, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. My question is, do you live and believe in Jesus? I'm not just talking about a head belief, because notice it says, those who live in Jesus and believe in Jesus. Do you live 
and believe in Jesus. As we come to the end of this service, I'm just going to ask you to stand right now. And I want us just to take a moment to reflect on the message that we've just heard. And I want to ask you two questions. I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what's the next step you want me to take in response to the message from your word today? Perhaps some of you have come to realize, maybe for the first time, that you're not sure where you would be moments after you die. And if that's where you're at, and you want to be sure, you want to put your trust in the Lord, I'm going to invite you just right now, with all eyes closed, I want to invite you to slip out of your seat. The person next to you will make room for that. Make your way up here. That includes those of you at other campuses. Make your way up to the front of your campus meeting place. Our pastors, our prayer partners, they're making their way up to the front right now. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to give you any, answer any questions you might have about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. As you reflect on today's message, others of you may have come to realize a new way that you're not living your life with heaven in mind. You're investing most of your time, your money and your abilities in things that are not going to last. And you're sensing God's calling you to change that. If today you're saying, Lord, from this day forward, I want the primary focus of my life to be about loving you first of all and then loving others. I want you to use me to show others in practical ways how much you love them. I want you to use me, Lord, to point them to you. Do you sense God's calling you to live more fully with heaven and eternity in mind than, again, in all of our campuses? I'm going to ask you to slip out of your seat and Make your way up to the altar as a first step of faith in which you're saying, Jesus, I'm serious about this. I'm serious about loving you and loving others. So we're just going to invite you right now. Whatever it is that God's saying to you. Remember, it's not going to mean a whole lot for you to leave here feeling like God said something to you, but you don't intend to do anything about it. If God's calling you to do something about it, take a first step and just come on up here and commit it to the Lord. We're just going to wait a moment and then we'll close. Father, I want to thank you for the picture of heaven which you have given us 
And we realize, Lord, it's, we see through a glass darkly. We can't fully appreciate what heaven's going to be like, but thank you for giving us some, just a bit of a clue what it's going to be like. And Lord, we do believe it's going to be a wonderful place. But Lord, while we're here on earth, we know that your will is that your children would all come home. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves anew to being men and women who seek to communicate your love to those around us. Lord, help us to live each day with heaven in our heart, with the awareness, Lord, that today might be our last. I just commit every person in this place to you. Thank you for those who have come forward. I ask, oh God, that whatever it is you've, um, you've called them to, Lord, that they would follow through, that they'd be obedient, believing to the core of their being that, Lord, when we live for you, we'll be blessed far beyond our imagination. And Lord, we'll be instruments that you're going to use to change the trajectory, the eternal trajectory of people who need the Jesus that we know and love. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 